And Jesus himself said that he did not come to do away with the law. This is the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast with your hosts, Michael Campbell and Greg Howell. Welcome, everybody, to the newest and latest edition of the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast. We are getting things started today with a topic that, frankly, uh, I've had my, my eye on for a long time. It's been something I've studied for quite a while, and I think as... As, as me and Michael have talked more and more about it, that it, it just keeps kind of coming up in a variety of different ways as we start studying a lot of our earlier Adventist, uh, it, it's history, it's theology. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to it. Michael's book, uh, 1922, just came out recently here. And some of the themes and ideas that he was working through in his research brought us back again to this topic. And so it's one of those things that we're going to kind of look at here. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it is last generation theology, folks. Uh, this idea that has been pervasive in Adventism for quite a long time. Frankly, it, it, it comes back in waves, I've seen, uh, just in my reading and kind of how it gets emphasized. It's never really gone away, though. And lots of folks in Adventism that have believed in, and, and still believe in this idea bring it up on, on a pretty consistent basis because it is kind of one of those overarching uh, theologies. If you if you buy this thing, that it's something that's, that's going to make your worldview much more distinct. So it's not something that folks who believe in it really get away from it. It informs a lot. But without going too much further on, Michael, you've done a lot of work on this. You even presented on this one just a couple months back in uh, one of the Sabbath schools online. Tell us a little bit from your perspective, what is last generation theology? Yeah, Greg, I mean, we're, we're really exploring a very relevant topic, I think, in Adventism because it's this, this infusion of this idea that somehow we have to be perfect in order for Christ to come. And now there's a lot of variations of that. Uh, and it's a term that's been kind of picked up and popularized in the 90s onward. I think George Knight actually is one of the first, if not the first, uh, back in the 90s to really kind of coin this term. Uh, but it's it's not just a, a term itself. It's an idea. It's a theology, as you mentioned. It's a kind of an ethos. And uh, it's, it's certainly not unique to Adventism. You go back all the way to the ancient Jews of the first century, they believed that they could make the Messiah come if all the Jews could keep the Seventh-day Sabbath perfectly two mm -hmm. consecutive Sabbaths in a row. And so there's this kind of uh, notion that uh, somehow by uh, this special sanctification process, and, 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 and here's the thing, Greg, is... is last generation theology, this idea of a last generation is true. There will be a last generation and there will be, and, and that's going to be really incredible. It's going to be special. And I hope by God's grace, you and I are part of that, right? Mm -hmm. um, Amen, yeah. But the, the challenge is, is that if we have all of the focus on ourselves, that that's where we're running into trouble and uh, what's what's intriguing to me with this 1922 book, which I was just talking, you know, we've, we've chatted a little bit about is that, I mean, there's so much research, I could have easily doubled it in size. I just, I had to cut because of uh, size parameters that Pacific Press gave me, which is <laughs> fine. Uh, but I have a whole bunch of uh, chapters I've been working on that kind of continue the story 
and and so maybe I don't know. I might have to end up with like a trilogy of of <laughs> 1919, 1922, and I don't know, maybe 1925 or something. You, I was gonna say, yeah, you're gonna have to continue the three year jump and just go to 25. Right, right. So, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this this is what we're we're, we're what we're dealing with is this development of Adventist fundamentalism and the, the, the cool or the crazy thing about all of this research is that now you can see direct link between some of these theological concepts that we call um, last generation theology that become really important in the story of Adventist history in the 20th century, uh, the history of ideas. And, and, and we see that that Genesis uh, or actually I kind of like the word enigma uh, because it's kind of mm. has this more mysterious origins, right? Where, where did this come from? Uh, the enigma of last generation theology, uh, which can be directly traced to the 1920s. But I mean, you and I have both been pastors. I mean, we've we've had to deal with um, some of the challenges of last yeah. generation theology, I'm sure, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I can I can remember a couple of different folk who, uh, you know, very clearly got into the idea that there was something we had to do. Uh, mm-hmm. to, to to get the second coming to happen sooner. Uh, and I think it's I think it's really part of if I had to guess, the psychology of Adventism uh, mm-hmm. requires that we rat- wrestle with the question, why is it still taking so long? Right? Right. I mean yeah. that's that's George Knight says it the best. He says Adventism's biggest problem is time. Yes, yeah, the delay of the eschaton. Exactly, because as long as it keeps going on and on, and we keep preaching this soon coming Savior, uh, it's going to have to come up. What's the holdup? <laughs> it's it's as if we need some kind of rational explanation for for that holdup. But you know, I, I keep coming back to this this concept of here is the patience of the saints. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a description of God's end time people too. Yeah. You know, and you look at throughout salvation history, there are there are these pivotal turning points and moments, but usually they never happen as fast as we would like them to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, Noah <laughs> and the flood. I mean, that was that was apocalyptic, too. Right. Yeah. Uh, you have the intertestamental period waiting for the Messiah, uh, you know, and, and, and all the way for the you know destruction of Jerusalem. All of those things are in their own way apocalyptic. They, they represented the end of the world for those people at that time and a, and a generation of believers who played a very significant role, you know? Yeah. And so I don't yeah. want to lessen in any way um, the idea that, that God's people at the end of time do have a significant role because that is uh, part and parcel. It's, it's to the very core. It's the heart of Adventist identity. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we should celebrate that. We we should, and, and it's it's absolutely essential because that's part of our job. Greg is 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 patiently waiting and proclaiming the news mm-hmm. that Jesus is coming. The problem is, is in my pastoral experience, is that uh, some some of the strongest advocates that I've met, and some have passed away now of what we call last generation theology. They were so focused on themselves being perfect that they had no assurance of salvation. And so they tended to be very focused on lifestyle behaviors, on dress reform, on health reform. And the most usual, the the most common theme had something to do with 1888. So, and it didn't, you know, it might have somehow identified with some of these uh, reform groups like the 1888, um, you know, Wheeland and Short. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that kind of that mentality what i it was some time later that i i finally realized that 
a big part of their theology um, is about all of this last generation theology, this per, this kind of perfectionism. And we see it um, in a lot of reactions to it in the 20th century. Uh, Desmond Ford, he grew up very influenced by Brimsmead when he was into last generation theology, this perfectionist, hyper-perfectionism. And of course, he, re, he reacts and goes to flip-flops to the other side where he's then very... Um, progressive and moves in a very, very different direction, very grace oriented. And a big part of that is this reaction again to what I would consider theological extremes. And so you kind of flip flop from one extreme to the other. And uh, when I would meet with church members, I remember meeting some dear saints who had given their lives to the church, faithfully served. I remember one lady that was a Dorcas leader for years and years, and then I held her hand on her deathbed and just, you know, oh, pastor, I don't know that I could ever be good enough to be saved. And she was just really into this last generation theology. I held her hand, mm-hmm. said, it's not about you being good enough. It's Jesus is good enough. And you just need to trust Jesus. And then all of a sudden, all the, the her brow that was just so furrowed and pensive, uh, just suddenly um, she had a smile of assurance. She just needed to be reminded that it wasn't about her being perfect. She just mm-hmm. needed to trust Jesus at that moment. I was so grateful I was there at that yeah. moment. I wish I could say that was an isolated incident, Greg, but I can think of, um, in fact, uh, sad to say, numerous times when I've had similar kinds of situations. So something's yeah. wrong if if we have church members, faithful, lifelong Adventists who've given themselves to the church and they just have no assurance of salvation. I think a big part of it. Um, not always, but often it seems in my experience, at least, is been this this concept of last generation theology. And here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. Is that last generation theology, the focus is on you instead of Jesus. Hmm. Yeah, right. You know, that that's the kicker is is there's never going to be a time we don't need Jesus. No. And, and even into all eternity. Exactly. And that that I'd say, yeah, I think you've highlighted it really well, is is the core result of last generation theology that mm-hmm. you don't have that assurance and you better figure out what you're doing wrong because clearly this isn't happening and you're part of the problem. And that's <laughs> to me, yeah, that's that's been the verbiage that I hear from a lot of folk uh, in my churches and in other circles they don't have that idea that their actions are just affecting themselves anymore. It, it is mm-hmm. this wider picture, but with that comes a certain level of guilt, introspection, uh, obsession over the lifestyle rules and regulations. It, it, it's, it's a different way of seeing it. Now, before we go too much further, I love where we're headed, but I want to help our listeners too. This type of history that we're kind of doing here, and especially when we're talking about a theology um, specifically is a history of ideas, or it is also termed sometimes historical theology. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of a treasure hunt. In fact, I find it to be one of the hardest things that we do in history uh, is to try and track down how an idea or where an idea came from and started and evolved over time. Um, and this idea, this, it's a hard one. It's not one that you, you basically have to know it and then read a bunch of stuff and hear the echoes of it in somebody's words somewhere. I mean, that's, it's, it's, a not a, it's not a simple version of history where we open up a biography and follow, oh, they went here, they went there, and then they did this. It's much more of like, 
how were they influenced and who who said this around them that they then took and and changed into something else uh the history of ideas is a complicated one and i think that makes looking at the last generation theology a little more complicated as well because a lot of the history happens in the head yeah yeah well and and let's look back i mean I know you and I've talked about this, but, you know, Jones and Wagner, we've already talked a little bit about 1888. I think you've been doing some diving into that. So where, where yeah. do these ideas come from? Is there a link with Jones and Wagner? Greg? Well, and and typically, yeah, last generation theology people um, have, have pointed towards some of these different quotes and ideas coming down from Jones and Wagner. Uh, Wagner himself, uh, best known as connected again to that 1888 conference, um, mm-hmm. It was a young co-editor of the Signs of the Times, you know, big, big, big figure in the church throughout the 1880s and the 1890s. And eventually, you know, he he comes to this view of righteousness by faith that was kind of adopted and supported by Ellen White, uh, but not so much by some folks in the larger church. So Wagner moved along towards the end uh, of his his time in the States to England as editor of the Present Truth magazine. And he was there for quite a while. Um, 10 years, I think, from the look mm-hmm. of things. He comes back for a general conference session in 1897, and here's where folks have found some of his early statements to start this, uh, to, to possibly start the last generation thinking. God, he says in, in one of his, um, his talks there, he says, God has left the vindication of his character to his children. He has, as it were, risked his character with men. Now, that idea is one of the foundational concepts in last generation theology, uh, that God in this particular back and forth with Satan needs to have some sort of justifiable vindication for his actions and his actions being here is my law. Here are my commandments. This is a requirement for all who follow me. And therefore, Satan's response is, oh, yeah, well, you've got this whole planet that isn't following you. How how are you going to justify bringing them back to heaven. That's that's not mm. going to look fair, right? Mm-hmm. And so God has to vindicate his actions. That concept that he has somehow left that vindication up to humans uh, is is core to last generation theology because he kind of keeps on going in there. The next year, he was talking about the 144,000. Um, and he says, in these people, God sees the work that he designed to do for men. And he's willing that these shall be known everywhere as the proofs of his saving power. He's willing to be judged by these results, and he puts his own seal upon them. His commandments are known to them as life everlasting, and Christ dwells in them, so that they have the faith of Jesus, and they are his perfect representatives. Again, that's coming from uh, Present Truth, 1898. And what's striking, I think, is the idea that he's bringing in here that God needs us somehow to prove to the universe that he is just, he's fair, and he's a loving creator. Um, and that that kind of grows on a theme, right? The reason that we're here isn't to just accept and to know Jesus and to be saved, but we are actually participating in the greater cosmic struggle, that we are, are the representatives that make the rest of the universe go, ah, yes, God is fair, he is just. So some of these ideas Wagner kind of kind of uh, brought in are mentioned, um, and they kind of provide a greater backdrop. By 1901, this is kind of the, the last big quote that I looked at, um, Wagner seems to have developed his idea of vindicating and the, the greater theme. Um, and he says, before probation ends, there will be a people <clears throat> so complete in God 
that in spite of their sinful flesh, they will live sinless lives. They will Mm. live sinless lives in mortal flesh because he who has demonstrated that he has power over all flesh lives in them, lives a sinless life in sinful flesh and a witness than which no greater can be given. Then the end will come. Hmm. Now, to me, that's where I start to hear really this this extra piece of a second coming narrative. Not only do you live a perfect life, and not only are you fully sanctified, a sinless life in sinful flesh, but that is what the end is dependent on. When Jesus sees that we have reached that state of sinless perfection, then he can come back. So you yeah. kind of put that together with vindication. You put that together with, you know, some uh, some ideas about sinlessness. Uh, and you've got the germs, we think, at least, uh, of, of a last generation theology. Well, I find this very interesting because, you know, Jones and Wagner, I mean, Ellen White even says, you know, if they were to lose their way, it wouldn't negate the message that they had. Mm-hmm. Uh, but some people have taken this kind of literalistic, um, almost like quasi-inspiration approach that because Ellen White supported their theology, then they're almost inspired, maybe not quite as much as Ellen White, mm-hmm. but almost, right? And so then they kind of go back and reconstruct. But it's interesting in the latter part of the 1890s, they're also starting to teach pantheism or panentheism, this idea that God is in nature or in us, mm-hmm. that kind of concept. So, uh, and it's interesting as they're coming, you know, uh, they're, they're obviously kind of theologically going in some new directions, um, but it, but if you believe that that they're sort of like inspired, then you're going to kind of reconstruct their whole theology. And I can see why now, based on what you're sharing, Greg, why people start going down that path of of this whole thing, um, and and that becomes really important. This connecting point, and and actually, I'm going to argue. I, I want to build on what you're saying, but but I, I want to build in in the 1920s. People are very interested in Jones and Wagner's theology again. Um, some mm-hmm. people are arguing forty years in the wilderness, kind of this allusion to the uh, to the Exodus account, right? You have Taylor Bunch who writes uh, writes this book, The Exodus and Type and Anti Type, mm-hmm. um, and it's so it's it's directly in line with eighteen eighty eight. But I, I'm going to argue that it's directly tied and built upon these ideas that as they become popularized again in the 1920s with Adventist fundamentalism. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and, and so there, there's definitely a, a, a direct link in some way, um, but it's also complicated. It's not just like one kind of thing, right? It's, it's, right. it's complex. History is complex usually. So it's not this kind of monolithic one thing happened and then suddenly uh, everyone believed in last generation <laughs> theology. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and I'm going to argue that there's a second uh, connecting point that also uh, reifies or, or helps to strengthen these, these ideas, um, because nobody uses the term last generation theology in that way, right? Nobody right, says, right. I believe in last generation theology. Wagner didn't say that, but he, you know, clearly the ideas are there. But uh, when I was preparing my 1922 book, I started looking. And I started looking at, uh, and I, I reread George Marsden's Fundamentalism in American Culture, his new third edition, this whole chapter on victorious life, the victorious life movement. And when I read that, all, you know, slowing down and reading page by page through the review and signs, I had this aha moment. I was like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. There's victorious life stuff everywhere. There's a victorious mm-hmm. life editorial department in the review and in the signs. There's all this literature from the wider fundamentalist movement that's very influenced by this this wave of holiness teachings and and 
you know, Greg, you've been doing some work on the holiness with some of your professors, right? Yeah, yeah. The, tell, uh, tell us, the... tell us what that is for someone that may not be familiar. Sure, sure. The holiness movement uh, was was kind of a, 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 a if I had to call it, I would say it, it contains the early proto Pentecostal um, view of of Christianity. You know, we we look at Pentecostalism today and say, oh, you know, it kind of grew up in the early twentieth century. But really, a lot of their ideas and their thinking came through an earlier group of folk uh, that were teaching what's called holiness. Uh, and that's a that's kind of coming to us from um, Wesley and and Methodism through a couple of different channels. But the holiness movement teaches that the true full gospel is experienced by the Christian it, through entire sanctification. Entire sanctification is not the work of a lifetime, says the holiness movement. You are able to access sanctification now in the present in an instant. And through that victorious living of Jesus through you, you experience the full gospel. You uh, you clearly are part and parcel of this experience. And they kind of had four big um, uh, testimonies that they would come. The, the phrase that gets uh, thrown around is, I know in whom I have believed. The Lord is my savior, my sanctifier, mm. my healer, and my coming king. And those four ideas, yeah. savior, sanctifier, mm-hmm. healer, coming king. You know, that's yeah. that's a, a, a an element of the holiness movement that, you know, clearly um, is absorbed by the wider uh, group of Christians in America, especially um, because a lot of it is is popularized by um, early holiness teachers and um, Phoebe Palmer uh, and her um, Wednesday afternoon uh, prayer meetings that became really really popular. Um, mm. And I think I think if you look at the holiness movement's teachings of entire sanctification as a work of the now, not mm-hmm. as a work of a lifetime, um, mm-hmm. then yeah, all of a sudden you've got this idea that we can be perfect and Jesus can make our lives sinless now. Um, and we can experience that altogether. It, to me, it's a blurring of the line between sanctification and glorification. Yeah. You know? Well, and a big part of their language is like the second blessing, right? That you, mm-hmm. that once you experience that second blessing, you will achieve uh, this holiness and that will uh, then usher in into, um, you know, they are, you know, there are some that are a little bit apocalyptic, but Adventists obviously are strongly apocalyptic and kind yeah. of adapt some of these ideas to an Adventist context, no doubt. Um, another popular term that really startled me as I was, was going diving into the uh, victorious life or the holiness or Keswick um, ideas and teachings is this idea of power for witnessing. And then I saw that I saw that and I was like, oh, my goodness, A.F. Ballinger, who later mm-hmm. will leave the church. That's the title of his book. And you start yeah. <laughs> looking in that and I'm like, oh my goodness, there's holiness stuff all over the place. Yeah. And obviously it's having an impact on Adventist thinking and ideas at the turn of the of the century then. So um, that's, that's to me, it's most intriguing that, I mean, there's obviously these very strong ties between Adventism and holiness. Yeah. Um, and, and two other ways that, that we see it, um, the holiness movement it's very good at talking about the role of the Holy Spirit and the Trinity. I think uh, Gil Valentine has done some good work, uh, some articles and research he's published that that directly tie the holiness movement and H. Camden Lacey and his ideas about the Trinity and the Holy Spirit. He'll become a strong advocate of that in Adventism. So obviously through, as mediated, if you please, through H. Camden Lacey, 
that will have a strong impact in Adventism and, and eventually even Ellen White too, right? She'll, she, right, right? she thinks very highly of H. Camden Lacey and, and his views. And the other one is um, Ed Allen at Union College, I know has been doing a lot of work on the student volunteer movement, which was very, very much uh, coming out of that same, that kind of Keswick holiness tradition, the idea of missions and student missions. Um, and Adventists, again, will the, these are, I, I think, very positive trajectories where you can mm -hmm. see um, significant positive impact um, from this this wider uh, world of ideas and exchange of ideas as Adventism is wrestling and studying and with its own identity. Yeah, right. And and I think that we you're highlighting a couple of things here. The the history of ideas tells us that an idea takes a very variety of forms and shapes and terminology over time, but that it also bounces between different groups who may not always find themselves, you know, to be comfortable partners. Um, and yeah. the idea here that we are absorbing holiness teachings uh, mm -hmm. from out from sources outside of Adventism, um, mm -hmm. or that, you know, the 1920s Adventists were taking on victorious life um, from a, a larger cultural perspective in, in the evangelical America, that mm -hmm. could be disturbing to some folk, you know? You know, we are Adventists, we have a prophet, we, we, we read and teach and we understand, and yet we are part of that larger narrative in the country that kind of absorbs some of this idea into ourselves. I mean, that's that to me is one of the things that stands out here. You know, yeah. last generation theology feels unique, and yet we're finding yet really... It's not. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> and, ooh, you're telling us the world affects us and our theology even? Like, yeah. that might be a little scary well, for some folk, you know? It, it might be, but I, you know, I think it's a good thing because God created us to exist. And here we are. We exist within a, a very specific time and place, you know? Mm -hmm. And if we acknowledge that other people existed in their time and place, uh, that should help us to better appreciate the cultural context and to appreciate the world in which they lived and through which they made a contribution to. So this doesn't lessen in any way our distinctive and unique Adventist identity. All it all it does is it just says, hey, that that Adventist identity is working out within uh, a specific culture and a, and a historical milieu, uh, just right. as it is today. And I, I like that. I like what you said, Greg, because it should give us pause for a little bit of humility to say, well, I wonder, you know, I wonder that we get to heaven, you know, people are going to look back at our time and say, mm -hmm. well, how, how were they influenced by right, their, right. their world of ideas and uh, the socioeconomic and politics, all of those different things that happen around us. And we need to make sure um, in a sense of humility that we allow our faith to transform those cultural assumptions and blinders rather than the other way around. And that's not easy to do. It's only by God's grace we can do that. But with the lens of history, we can hopefully be a little bit more, hopefully, a little bit more objective in trying to <laughs> to look at the past. Well, yeah. I want to come back to this victorious life movement because it's crazy um, mm -hmm. how uh, much this 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 these ideas were impacting Adventism. Uh, George Thompson, uh, who is I believe at one point he was one of the the field secretaries of the General Conference, a major player in Adventism in the late teens and twenties. He goes on the camp meeting circuit, and and in his reports he talks about how he's preaching the victorious life. Um, and, and you actually see a whole, I found a page, um, it's actually used many times, advertising Adventist literature. It's titled Literature for the Victorious Life. And if you start looking at that literature, <laughs> these, these authors, these 
terminology, the different terms, um, ideas, they start um, impacting Adventism in a very uh, broad and, and profound kind of way. Probably some of the most um, uh, significant advocates are Mead McGuire, who writes a book called The Life of Victory, and Matilda Andros, who writes a couple of different books, The Life That Wins. Yeah, you inspired uh, me. I got a copy yeah. of that. <laughs> did you? All right. I sweet. did. It was an original copy. I, gra I grabbed one. Sweet. And and you, I started reading that book and she starts, she's using phrases like let go and let God, which is classic uh, mm -hmm. terminology from the Victorious Life Movement. You look at the, um, another one of her books or booklets is called The Life That Wins. It's this boat being tossed in the ocean. Um, so you have this idea of turmoil and you, you need the victorious life. You need the second blessing in order for you to experience uh, perfection. So, um, and, and again, you just see these ideas are, are clearly there about being perfect uh, in order for, basically in order for Christ to come, right? And there's two quotations that you start seeing being used, um, this kind of proof text approach. One is from Christ Object Lessons. I, I know you know the quote about mm -hmm. Christ's character being perfectly uh, reproduced in reproduced, his people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that, that classic quote is probably the most quoted or misquoted uh, quotation by Ellen White mm -hmm. after her death in the 20th century, I suspect. And uh, you, so you have that quote. And then you have a, a brief reference in Great Controversy about God's people living without a mediator. Now, yeah. if you read both of those chapters in their original, in the context, not just the little snippet, but the whole context, you see that Ellen White is saying, and she's not talking about like holiness as some kind of status that one achieves, you know, by being good enough. She's talking about perfect surrender. That's a term she uses a lot in character development. Um, so her view of perfection and then what is being superimposed on Ellen White are very two very, very vastly different things. And, um, and the same thing about the quote about God's people at the end of time. Um, the point being made is, you know, these people, God's people are so perfectly surrendered that they, they trust Jesus completely right through those end time events. So it's never their strength or their power that, that, that makes them able to survive the end times. You know, I used to be so mm -hmm, scared right. of the end times. How can I ever be good enough? Right. No, it, it's, it's still all Jesus. It's all Jesus. And, yeah. and you don't get that unless you actually read the context and you read the whole the whole chapter there by Ellen White. Um, yeah, those are startling and, and very sobering events at the end of time. But we have hope through Jesus. And that's that's the beautiful thing there. But those mm. quotes, uh, those specific quotations are being uh, utilized very much so in the context of this victorious life movement, this literature in the 1920s. So again, you see this direct link, this proof texting approach, this very rigid and and uh, literalistic way of, of reading inspired writings, especially Ellen White. Um, and, and combining that with ideas, sure, that go back to, definitely go back to Wagner for sure, uh, but but that are being re-espoused and re-appropriated by within an Adventist context and so really you have the birth, the genesis, the enigma of last <laughs> generation theology through the victorious life movement in the 1920s. Yeah. And there's a lot more work that needs to be done. I've, I've written a couple chapters now. It's going to be in my uh, third volume. I'm not sure what that's going to look like yet, but it, 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 you know, it's, it's taking shape. Um, that's the great thing. You write a book and sometimes you write an extra book. And you don't even mean to. 
<laughs> but you know, but that's a great problem to have, man. Most people <laughs> in the scholastic world say, oops, I wrote another book. Ah, oh, I didn't even mean to. That's not yeah. a problem everybody says. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, it's it's gonna I'm I'm fleshing this out right now, but it's 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 there. It's this is amazing. And a lot of people point to MLN Dresden, right? In the 1930s and 40s. Yeah, yeah. And certainly he's a major player, but by the time he's teaching his ideas of last generation theology, he's just picking up on the obvious of what had been widely espoused and taught in Adventism in the 1920s when he would have been mm. a young a young pastor just kind of getting started with his ministry. So certainly yeah, he becomes right. the most important purveyor of last generation theology in the 20th century. But of course, that's about 10 to 15 years in the future. Right. And there's yeah, this his... kind of intermediary stage between the two, right? I mean, you can trace earlier seeds of it and then later, but, but fundamentalism, Greg is where it's at, man, <laughs> where, where, where it all takes off. It, it has become, and I think this is a theme we, we've talked about this, honestly, since we met in Berkeley, how yeah. fundamentalism has created the version of Adventism that we grew up in and are still wrestling with. Yeah. And, and I think that that's something that your research is really bringing out strongly, even, you know, obviously here with this last generation stuff, but just in the mm -hmm. wider picture, you mm -hmm. just said it. We started reading the Bible like fundamentalists. Yeah. We started reading Ellen White like fundamentalists. Yeah. A literalistic, inerrant, word for word translated, transcribed from God himself mm -hmm. view that mm -hmm. created a new, uh, almost a new core theology within Adventism. A new Adventism, what, yeah. what some people might even call historic Adventism, for a lack of a better term. I, you right. know, I've heard that term batted around. I don't like those kinds of labels, but you know, what, but what I found is I look at historic Adventism isn't very historic. It's it's a it's a, a aberration or an innovation of ideas that clearly can be now historically traced to the early twentieth century. Yeah. And, and if we can do that, and, and that's what I find fascinating here, if you're telling us that the vibrant life movement and the victorious, the, the, sorry, <laughs> yeah, the victorious life movement, that concept infused not even how we just read the Bible, but also how we read Ellen White, yeah. uh, that's a wider hermeneutic that we may not be able to acknowledge and frankly mm. will bother a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, when I read Ellen White that I'm not just reading her and she's telling me truth, wait, there's other things in my head that are making me interpret her different than maybe she meant to be interpreted. Like, whoa, whoa, sure. whoa, whoa. Now you've, yeah. you're, you're hitting a very meta level of, of uh, uh, fear over my ability to even understand what I read. <laughs> well, and this, this brings up this greater point of, uh, the, or this wider point, I should say, of how we interpret inspired writings matters. We all interpret mm -hmm. inspired writings. We all interpret each other through our body language, through the words we use, the inflection and tone, all of those things are part of communication. And God communicates to us uh, through human vessels, you know, uh, but, you know, that that's the perspicuity of scripture, that term that goes back to Luther and the Reformation, the mm -hmm. clarity of scripture, that the message of salvation is so clear that none can miss, not even a child uh, need may err if if possible, but yet um, God allows His love and the message of redemption to just pour forth so that we can see it and and behold it. Um, our challenge is that the is the message of the gospel and our beautiful Adventist message that I mean, you go back to the early pioneers that they they studied the scriptures. They um, I love this idea of present truth. This this idea that they wrestled and studied and continued studying to remain faithful to scripture. 
And to the extent that we do that, we are being faithful to the very ethos and the very earliest beginnings and the DNA of, 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 of Adventism, right? That And Jesus is soon returning. And you have to love Jesus and fall in love with Jesus to want him to come again. That's what makes me excited about being an Adventist is that I understand and see Jesus more clearly and want and need him more and more in my life as I surrender to him. Uh, the challenge is, is when we ourselves get in the way. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's the really, that's the challenge of fundamentalism. Um, not all of fundamentalism is necessarily bad. It's a historical movement. So we're, we're historians, Greg. So we're just yeah. trying to look at all of it, the good, bad, and everything in between. And, um, you know, just like the, uh, the holiness or the victorious life movement, there are some very positive elements, contributions, but, but some of this, these ideas of that second blessing and perfectionism, uh, that, that kind of way of thinking as it became enmeshed within an Adventist, uh, way of thinking in the twenties, what I call Adventist fundamentalism, mm -hmm. uh, also became problematic. And this is, this is the problematic side of, of, of this is we have, we have this new um, way of thinking, new way of approaching inspired writings um, that that uh, will uh, will become an important part of the story of the 20th century in Adventist yeah. history and theology. Absolutely, I, I don't think I think your research is showing there's no way to escape this. the The fundamentalist movement is, became part of the Adventist movement, and we mm -hmm. we don't have a way around that. But we can yeah. acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. And like you said, as historians, okay. we look for those those linkages and things that help us understand ourselves better. We shouldn't. And here's where I kind of think uh, we can we can point out that we are part of a long line of disciples. Um, mm. We shouldn't be surprised that as Christians, we too have the tendency to misunderstand Jesus. If the disciples of his own time misunderstood his mission and his purpose for being here and God allowed them to think that he was going to be an earthly messiah that was supposed to throw off Rome, well, then we shouldn't be surprised that we can do the same. Sure, we should give us some humility, right? <laughs> right, and, and therefore, <clears throat> pause for reflection, right? But therefore, yeah. we should also be willing to say, hey, maybe I need to keep learning about who Jesus is. Maybe mm -hmm. I shouldn't assume that I know it and have it so solidly down that nobody can tell me differently. Um, last, generation, last generation theology, Adventists at large, we have to maintain that humility. Otherwise, mm -hmm. we do run that risk of mistaking yeah. the Messiah when he shows up. Yeah. And, well, hey. And, oh, sorry. I was just going to say, it's all about Jesus. <laughs> it, it is. It is. It's, it's about Jesus. And it has Adventism to is at its best when we keep our eyes focused on Jesus. Amen. That's that's fantastic. Well, hey, Michael, your work is fantastic here. Um, I'm excited to see where we go and if there's going to be an ending to the trilogy. Uh, yeah. We need we need that. Uh, but also just this last, last generation stuff. This gets me all riled up and excited. Well, well folks, I love when we can collaborate when when you have your research and mine. It just comes together and dovetails so, so nicely, Greg. Yeah. Yeah. No, I do, too. It makes a great conversation. Well, folks, thanks again for uh, sticking your heads into our discussion here and listening for a while. We appreciate that, and we really do uh, appreciate your feedback. If you ever have any comments or questions, we've got a couple of different avenues on the websites, Instagram, Facebook, um, and through Apple Podcasts is one of our big ones. So we'd love to hear back from you. If you like these episodes and you like what you're hearing, make sure to give us a quick little review or a couple of those stars. They do help, and they do 
bump us up in those virtual AI brackets of however all this stuff works. We appreciate your feedback. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast. Next month, we'll have some more tidbits, snippets, and pieces of history that may have been forgotten, but not forever. We are committed to never forgetting our Adventist heritage. Thanks again. Have a great day, everybody. And Jesus himself said that he did not come to do away with the law. Take us out of this world if he does not want us to be contaminated by